So have any of you heard that saying, hindsight is 2020? Right? So Merriam-Webster Dictionary describes this expression to mean the full knowledge and complete understanding that one has about an event only after it occurs. <laughs> In other words, this expression suggests the uncertainty that we so often face before making a decision. And how that uncertainty is usually cleared up after we see the consequences. Sometimes it's good, but un unfortunately, oftentimes the consequences are bad. And that's why we look back and we say, man, hindsight is 2020. Perhaps uh, you've experienced this or had a family member or friend that when it came to buying a car or house, they were like, man, if only I knew how things were going to turn out with that vehicle. If only I knew how many things were hidden that were wrong with that house. You know, hindsight is 2020. Or maybe a vacation or travel decision, right? You, you think this location is going to be awesome and great only to find out everything was closed <laughs> during the season that you went in. Or maybe you decided it would be super fun to join forces with this travel buddy. And while you guys got along in other ways, traveling together wasn't it. It wasn't the right decision. Um, but sadly, this can affect big decisions too like majors studying in college or career paths. Perhaps even we've found ourselves jumping on a bad wagon of incorrect doctrine or an impulsive hidden agenda in something, and we didn't realize it, and we were swept up in that because hindsight is 2020. Well, as we look at Joshua chapter 9 through 12, we'll see how some of that hindsight comes into play for Joshua and the men of Israel. So we'll pick up in verse 1. Pray we have so many verses to read, but I think we'll be able to get through it tonight. Picking up in verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But, notice the contrast here, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended. Verse 5, old and patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? It was almost like if the Holy Spirit was warning them or something. <laughs> but they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Notice that this is the first true thing that the men of Gibeon have said. And Joshua said to them, 
who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Verse 12. This bread of ours, we took hot for our provision from our house on the day we departed to you. But now, look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which were new, which we filled, see, they are torn. And these are garments, and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. In verse 14, right, the clear and um, key verse to this chapter. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. We'll pause there a second just to note how pathetic these tools of deception, right? To be fooled by old, nasty bread, to be fooled by garments that have holes in them and sandals that have patches. I, no wonder all these people were so mad at Joshua when they found out that these men were actually their neighbors. I, and I think of that sometimes, too, when we look back at maybe certain temptations that we've fallen into, certain things that we couldn't be freed from, and we look at it, and now it's like this gross, moldy garment, you know, nasty bread that's like super crusty, and we're like, ill. I can't believe I fell for that. I can't believe I fell for that. Because at the time, we thought, man, I'm using my five senses. It all makes so much sense. Of course the Lord would understand and would want me to compromise and make this covenant. But then looking back, you're like, those tools were so pathetic. Like, at least if it had been like gold or something, I don't know. (laughs) But it's moldy dry bread. No, we'll continue to now verse 15. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Cherif, Baroth, Kirjath, Jerim, but the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation complained against the rulers. Verse 19, then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we have sworn to them. And the ruler said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation, as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. 
I noticed reading through the, the story this time that the congregation thought that their compromise, right? They were so mad that they were deceived that they thought they needed to punish the Gibeonites by making them slaves for all the people. Like, you know what? Make, make them take care of us, right? Let's be oppressive to them because they tricked us. And they're going to be our water boys and they're going to cut wood for us. But Joshua, in the Lord's wisdom, said, okay, yes, they messed up and they tricked us. But at the end of the day, we're the ones that believe them, right? And he doesn't further oppress them. He says, no, they're going to be servants in the house of the Lord, right? They're not going to be oppressed by the entire people and now everybody taking it out on them because they were tricked. Yes, they needed consequences, but ones that were fitting to what they did because they were the ones who didn't seek the Lord. So I thought that was interesting how oftentimes when we sin and we think someone else is the cause, we think, well, I'll show them, you know, rather than repenting and making sure that, you know, we're, we're dealing with it according to God's word. So we continue seeing in verse 24, so they answered Joshua and said, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as seems good and right to do to us. Note the faith and humility of the Gibeonites, right? What they did is not excused. They lied, they deceived, and they were punished for it. And I think to myself, if the Lord was able to redeem their deception and their compromise, imagine what he could have done with their obedience, right? What might the story have been if they had come humbly, if they had acted properly in this faith? right, saying, we've heard of what God did with Moses. In a sense, these men had more faith than the other 10 spies that went with Joshua and Caleb into the promised land the first time around, right? So imagine what the Lord could have done. So ladies, I just want to encourage you never to resort to deceptive means, right? The Lord wants to honor your faith. He wants to honor your humility. Come to him with the right reasons in the right way. The right reasons are not enough to excuse our sin. In verse 26, So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Listening to Jophoge, he points out that that city of Gibeon actually ended up being given to the Levites later on as things are being distributed. So the Lord definitely had a special plan for this, um, this city. But how can we apply this to our lives today? One of the verses that came to mind is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. And I'm going to read it from the Amplified Version of the Bible. It says, To keep Satan from taking advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Ladies, remember the enemy's schemes is to deceive you. He's constantly going to use moldy bread, and broken sandals, and patched up garments to get you to compromise. We can be misled by our senses, right? So that's a key takeaway. Don't be misled by 
your senses. And really what we see here in this chapter, Joshua chapter 9, is a caution against craftiness. So if I had to give uh, a subtitle to this chapter, it would be that, cautioned against craftiness. And the best way is to not be misled by our senses. Verse 14, again, that key verse, they took the bread, they looked at it, right? Maybe they smelled it. Oh, yeah, that's moldy. Oh, let me look at those wineskins. Oh, yeah, I could tell it's, it's super dry. They used all their five senses. They even reasoned among themselves. Yeah, it makes sense that they would be far away. But it was wrong. Don't be misled. 2 Corinthians 5.7 reminds us, we walk by faith, not by sight. Stop and seek the Lord before making any kind of covenants, lest you be found in compromise. Now we go to Joshua chapter 10. You know, just a small little chapter, 43 verses. <laughs> but what we could take away from, from these, um, just this incredible account of the Lord's faithfulness is how we need to confront conflict. Confront conflict. Sometimes conflict comes in, a lot, in our lives, a difficulty, and we think, oh, I need to run. This is too hard. But here Joshua is told time and time again to be strong, to be courageous, to face it. We need to confront conflict as the Lord will enable us. Speaking of being enabled by the Lord, we're going to read through just as much of this chapter as we can because his word is so important, right? And it does not come back void. Verse 1, now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty. And again, that reminded me of just the humility of these men, that they were mighty men. They could have been useful for Joshua in his army, right? These strong men, and now it's like, no, you're going to use your might to carry water and cut wood for the temple. And they said, okay, that's what we'll do. They weren't bragging. They didn't bring about their resume, their mighty men they were. They said, okay, that's what we deserve. Therefore, verse 3, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to the other king, and the other king, and the other king, saying, come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, king of Jerusalem, of Hebron, of Jarmuth, of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up. They and all their armies encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. Verse 7, So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. In verse 8, look at this amazing verse. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. 
So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Haran, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. Notice here the importance of a preemptive attack when it comes to spiritual battles. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We don't have time to turn there, but if you could just jot it down. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14. I think a lot of us are familiar with the truth that's taught in this scripture, right? That no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted what you are able to bear, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape, right? We know that with every temptation, God makes a way of escape. But have we ever stopped to think that a lot of times the way of escape is before we're in that temptation, right? It's a preemptive attack. You don't have to wait and sit there for the temptation to come and then decide to look for the escape route, right? We should be able to run, as it tells us in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There's a way of escape that God has provided, so flee from the temptation. Flee from that temptation. The preemptive attack is essential to gaining spiritual victories in spiritual battles, right? We hear the examples of the alcoholic avoiding bars. For a while, this girl that would struggle with contentment had to stop online um, window shopping, right? Like the windows in my computer <laughs> were leading me to not be content, right? Wishing I had more money so I could buy more things for my house, wishing I had a better house, wishing I had more money to bless my friends, all this stuff. And it just came from online ads and it was probably just a waste of time anyway. So I just knew that if I wanted to grow in contentment, I needed to stop wasting time in online window shopping. So there are certain things that we need to do to guard our hearts against those temptations. Verse 11, and it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Haran that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day and when, in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ahilon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. In verse 14, and there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. If there was any doubt who was behind this victory, the Lord did it through the hailstones, through the sun standing still, um, listening to different teachings um, and looking at different commentaries, some scholars believe that what happened is for this one time in history, Mars actually came into close orbit with the Earth. And so that's what caused this hailstorm. It was kind of like a meteor shower that came down, which in a sense is still miraculous that none of the Israelite army got hurt by it. I always thought that was like amazing how the hailstones were only designated for the enemies of the Lord. And then why the, the like tilt of the 
Earth's axis seemed to like almost halt and yet gravity wasn't affected. Like all these things that we think about the miracle of what the Lord could do, how that might have been the case is that actually these planets, their orbits kind of for the first time ever in history and since then have done it. And some have even said, oh, I wonder if that's what's going to happen in Revelation that that would maybe explain some of those cataclysmic, you know, terrible things that can come to pass in the end of ages. So I thought that was an interesting explanation. In verse 15, Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard it. And I love this instruction, instructions. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemy and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. I love that command because it's all about what the Lord has done. Now go do it. Right? Like, you need to pursue the enemy because the Lord has given them to you. Verse 20, then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished, that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua and Makeda in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees till evening. And so it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and cast them into the cave where they had been hidden and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain to this very day. And verse 28 on to about 39, we see how Joshua deliberately with the men of, of Israel took each of these king's cities, right? From Makeda, they struck it, and they killed and did everything, annihilated as the Lord told him. In Lachish, he did the same. Verse 34, he passed on to Eglon and did the same. Then to Hebron, and he struck it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroyed it. In verse 40, so Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly, utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. Joshua conquered them from Kadesh, Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time. Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to camp at Gilgal. Ladies, 
we need to be sure that when it comes to conflict, we're ready to confront it. And the key takeaway here is not to rely on our own strength. You know, they were winning the battle. The hailstones were there. They saw that the Lord was in it. And Joshua still felt bold enough to ask for that supernatural help in this battle. And the Lord came through. Joshua chapter 11 The focus here is to concentrate on the commands. Concentrate on the commands. Picking up in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to another king, and to the other king, and to the other king, and to the kings who were in the north now, right? So last chapter was the kings of the south. You would think they would learn their lesson, but no. Um, In the plains of Kinneroth in the lowland and in the heights of Dor on the west to the Canaanites in the east and the west and apparently there's still Amorites and Hittites and <laughs> Perizzites and Jebusites in the mountains now and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out. They and all their armies with them as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in the multitude with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Maram to fight against Israel. Verse 6, but the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. Sound familiar? For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them. Slain before Israel, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Maram, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook, to the valley eastward, and they attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did As the Lord had told him, he humstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazar and struck its king with its sword, for Hazar was formerly the head of those kingdoms. Verse 11, and they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on the mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. In verse 14, and all the spoils of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had utterly destroyed them. Again, they left none breathing. In verse 15, key verse here, as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, the south, the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from the mountain to the ascent, even as far as the valley below the Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy. 
but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, uh, all the mountains of Judah, from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, where they would later become Goliath's family, in Ashdod. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then, and only then, after they had done all the Lord had commanded, did the land rest from war. Ladies, Joshua does not pull his punches when it comes to dealing with the enemies of the Lord. I wonder how many in the church right, in the body of Christ at large, are struggling and missing out on victory because they will not fully obey. Ladies, don't shrink back. We see that in the key verses there of 14 and 15. Joshua left none with breath because they were enemies of the Lord. He did all that Moses had commanded him to do because he knew it was what the Lord had commanded him to do. Don't shrink back. This is a very violent chapter, right? This book is very violent. We talked about it a little bit last time in our welcome back. Um, I didn't realize how close those chapters were when they talked about, um, again, just that that difficulty in accepting, okay, Lord, you made the sun stand still, and Lord, you're commanding him to annihilate all these people groups. And it reminded me of this verse in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. It says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Right? David Guzik writes this, Jesus' reference to violence refers to both the intensity of the spiritual warfare surrounding the ministry of Jesus and his herald John the Baptist, and also to the intensity required to persevere in following God and his kingdom. The kingdom will never be received passively. It is always founded on God's work on our behalf, but God's work will always produce a response in us. Another commentator mentions it this way. They are not lazy wishes or cold endeavors that will bring men to heaven. We live in a society that has confused weakness with moral virtue. My husband, Adrian, on his social media algorithm, gets all these, like, jujitsu, martial arts, like, super manly men, man-up videos. Um, And he showed me one recently where someone's being interviewed, and um, this is what he says. He says, it's important to learn to be dangerous while simultaneously learning how to control it. He compares that to the martial arts. I would add it's not just about controlling it yourself, but knowing how to surrender that to the Lord's control, that, being, that ability to be dangerous. The guy being interviewed goes on to say, there's nothing to you otherwise if you are not a formidable force. There's no morality to your self-control. If you're incapable of violence, then not being violent isn't a virtue. You've just confused weakness with moral virtue. And I thought of um, 
just as ladies, how we have these mama bear instincts sometimes, right, that we don't even realize. Maybe someone's picking on a friend and all of a sudden you find like this boldness to like intervene and like say something or if it's your own child that you feel is threatened, like out of nowhere there's just this like mama bear aggression. And we need to follow those instincts when it comes to fighting for our kids, fighting for our homes, against sin that wages war against our souls. Think of how precious a soul is that both heaven and hell are fighting for them, right? And we must be violent for the kingdom of heaven to be that aggressive when it comes to the stances we're willing to take on sin. Joshua chapter 12, we come to our last chapter, and the key takeaway here is to conquer compromise. Conquer compromise. It goes to list the different kings and cities which Moses on the other side of the Jordan was able to have victory in and that he gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh and to the other two tribes that wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan. Um, and then it lists all the kings which Joshua and the men of Israel were able to conquer 40 years later. And it's just amazing how it lists them, right? Beginning in, in verse 8, it's almost like repetitive, right? Like this one king, this one king Jericho, this one king I, Bethel. So everything we've read so far, um, 31 kings and all. And I thought that's just so beautiful how the Lord took the time to list one by one to summarize what we've been going through all these chapters. Because ladies, there's no stalling there's no stalling. Don't look for shortcuts. We have to defeat those enemies one by one. Um, yes, we must wait on the Lord. We must go in his strength. But once he's told you to do something, obey it fully. Stop stalling lest you miss out on the blessing. In conclusion, how do we do this, right? How do we caution against craftiness? How do we confront conflict instead of caving in the face of difficulty, right, like those kings did when they hid in the cave? How do we concentrate on the commands, and how do we conquer any compromise? We must set our eyes on the cross. When we have cross eyes, so to speak, we're actually clearly seeing better than 2020. Sandy Adams shared this. He says, in many ways, the book of Joshua is an amazing model of the book of Revelation. Remember the theme of both books, a Jesus, or Joshua, wages war against a collection of pagan kings in order to take possession of a land that belongs to God and his people. In Joshua, the land is Canaan. In Revelation, the land is the entire planet Earth. And look at the parallels Two spies enter Jericho. We have two witnesses sent by God to the earth. Seven trumpets shake the wall of Jericho, and seven trumpets will one day shake the earth. Both campaigns last seven years, the Great Tribulation and Canaan's conquest. Both opposition forces are led by a king in Jerusalem. Adonai Zedek means Lord of Righteousness. He typifies the Antichrist, the imposter of righteousness. In both books, Joshua and Revelation, God uses cataclysmic judgments to humble the enemy. Hailstones fall in Beth Horon, 
while hundred-pound hailstones will fall on blasphemers. God will stone the world for its blasphemy. In Revelation 6.15, the kings of the earth hide themselves in rocks and caves. And in Joshua 10.16, five kings that come against Joshua hide themselves in a cave at Makeda. And the list of parallels goes on and on. It's really amazing. My sisters, can you picture us on the other side of eternity because of the cross, because of Christ's sacrifice? One day we'll be there in his presence and we'll be able to look back on the trials, the battles, the difficulties of life, and it will all finally come into focus. Won't it be worth it to see his face, to worship at his feet? We'll be able to look at all those things that we conquered, all those times that we chose to invest in our heavenly land rather than this passing world, and we'll finally have 2020 vision forever and ever. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for um, your word, your promise, Lord, that any enemy of yours that we are willing to fight, Lord, you desire to give us that victory. So, Lord, I, I pray for all your daughters here tonight, God. You know, you know those enemies that have grouped themselves against her. God, fight on her behalf. Help her to take those drastic stances in your name, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.